we need more people to come together and go, this is an area I'm struggling with and still learning and adapting or growing, or it's a new area that I've got to grow, go to, because I believe every layer we go through um, in, in leveling up, it's just more to grow through. So whatever challenge comes, it will trigger my triggers of being good enough from a childhood. It will trigger everything in rejection because that's been a theme of my life. So at age 20, I left my family. I'm excommunicated. Age 37, 36, 37, I left the church excommunicated. So it's not happened once. It's not happened twice. There's been other instances, you know, relationships, other things that that have broken down. Learning how to navigate those things and learn from them and own my part and my responsibility mm -hmm. and be able to clearly go, this part's not mine. Welcome back, everyone, to the Redemption Road podcast. I'm your host, Doc John. Here on Redemption Road, we interview high performers to hear about their life hacks and strategies to overcome the worst of pitfalls in order to live a life of abundance and thriving. Today's guest has an amazing story. Back in 97, she made a very scary choice and took a huge risk to leave everyone and everything she knew in her hometown in order to escape a lifetime of repression, control, abuse, and limitation. She moved across the country with limited funds, no family, and almost no community, with an absolute commitment to live her life in freedom and in choice. She's overcome a series of traumatic events and now works as a transformational coach, blogger, writer, and a speaker with passion to encourage, support, and inspire you to create the life that you want by choosing to intentionally live. It's my pleasure to introduce Misty Gilbert. Misty, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here today. Thank you, John. Thank you for this opportunity to have this discussion with you. Uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while now. Uh, you've been you've been away traveling, and uh, so I've been looking forward to you getting back from your travels so that uh, we could do this. And uh, you've got an amazing story to tell, and I can't wait to have you share it with everyone. And uh, you've had to overcome, I would say, more than most people. I mean, it's tough to compare. Everybody's you know, got different stories, but uh, you've definitely got a story that's very memorable, and I uh, look forward to having you tell that to everyone. So why don't we delve in? Um, sure. Redemption is the theme of this podcast. And so I'd like to open it up to you. Uh, you've overcome a lot and you, you've been very successful and you're someone that's thriving in your life now. Uh, talk to us about uh, the major things that you've overcome. Uh, I'll let you start from the beginning or wherever you see fit. Okay. Well, um, I am 46 years old. I've been in Texas for 26 years. Um, I moved to Texas from California, leaving my um, biological family. I was the oldest of three kids. Um, my sister's two years younger. My brother's five years younger. Um, my decision to leave um, came largely because my sister initiated that process three months prior to me on her 18th birthday. She left um, the home and moved to Texas. Um, the environment that I was raised in with my parents was very abusive, emotionally, mentally, physically, spiritually. Um, and it was hard to know the depths of that because when you live in that environment, you assume everybody's home is like sure. yours. And my mom was born and raised into a religious 
uh, group of people. I now call it a cult because that's exactly what it is. But growing up, I, I would not have referred to that. And even when I left home, I would have referred to that. Um, my dad married into it. And um, obviously, I was born and raised into it. The way my parents raised us was very strict. It ran the home much like the military in the, the sense that we had a set time to be up, a set time breakfast had to be done, chores had to be done. We had very little playtime. We had very little time to ourselves. It was discretionary. And um, that was my routine prior to any disciplinary action. Um, my parents had a lot of religious beliefs that were a foundation of the cult that I was born and raised into, but some of them were their own um, things that they developed. And of course, now I know that looking back at the time, I had no direct communication with a lot of people as far as my day-to-day -day living. I had friends in the church, but my contact with them was mainly a, a few times a year at Christian camp retreats because we lived secluded an hour away from the group of Christians that would fellowship together. So a little background on the on the religion. It is a cult that's a variation of every type of religion that's out there. So we were like Jehovah Witness in the fact that we would pass out tracts or that we didn't celebrate Christmas or any mm -hmm. other holidays. Okay. We did celebrate our birthdays. We were like the Baptist in the sense that we didn't drink, smoke, or dance. We were like the Pentecostal in the sense we wore long denim skirts, hair up in a bun. Um, we didn't do makeup or big jewelry or anything like that, but we did look like them in the, that sense. We were a lot like the Mennonite or the Pente um, Mormon or um, Amish, where they have strong communities, where they help each other build houses, put on events, um, design weddings. Like we, we, we utilize whatever sources of skill set you have. So if you were a carpenter, you were a seamstress, you were a cake person or photographer, like for weddings, for instance, all those people would chip in and donate their time um, and resources and skills. And usually the person covering the wedding, whether that was the bride and groom or the parents of the bride and groom, they paid actual costs, hard costs. So we put on very elaborate weddings for very little money. Um, some of this was done in a way that was how we were designed to serve one another, love one another. Other parts of it was became a competition because of the codependency and the elevating people that she was more of a Proverbs 31 woman than someone else. And that's referencing, referencing a, a chapter in the Bible where it describes a woman and who she should be. Um, women were suppressed in the group. We weren't allowed to have a voice. We could not participate in Bible studies, lead prayer, um, things that I do now <laughs> all the time was not how I was raised. Women were silent. Women were s supposed to do everything for a man. We were basically a servant to men. Um, there was not mutual respect. There was not equality. Um, so that was the form of my upbringing. It sounds um, like there I wasn't much chance for kids to be kids there. It was, it sounds like you had to grow up very quickly in a lot of ways and not much time for you know, everything very regimented, everything very strict and um, not, not too much time for, for play or. No, the, I, the, the, and I'm sure there's some varying degrees depending on the family. My family was very strict. Some mm -hmm. of that was my mom's desires to uh, implement skills from a young age. Some of it is at age 10 for me, she got hepatitis. They didn't know where and how she contacted at the time it was referred to non A, non B, which is now hepatitis C. 
um, and she was flat in bed for six months. So at 10 years old, eight years old, and five years old, us children had to assume a lot of responsibilities in the house. My dad was a basket case. He was hardly able to function. Um, and so his focus was going to work and making money. So taking over the house in the sense of laundry, cooking, cleaning. Yeah, I started at a very young age. I'd already been exposed to it. I'd helped mother make dinner, you know, make a salad or make the vegetable to go to the casserole or something like that. But like run it, start to finish, make a grocery list, all of that. I hadn't done all of it. Um, she, mom had, mom was raised with a lot of that same upbringing. So I think that's why she instilled it to us, you know, um, whether that's we made everything from scratch if possible. The only thing I don't know how to make is pasta. We made bread, we made all our clothes, anything and everything that could. Some of that was because of the scarcity mindset and money. Mm -hmm. Some of it was because of the skill sets that they felt you needed to have. To My mom had, a, for instance, a long list of things to get married that we had to do first. We had to be able to strip a piece of furniture, refinish it and make it completely like new. There were a long list of things like that that she had. So we were very industrious. And, um, but no, we weren't allowed to have much of a childhood and, and playtime. Um, a typical Monday through Friday work week would look like up until about eight o'clock you were doing chores and then eight to nine, you would have free time. And then bedtime was nine o'clock lights out by nine fifteen. hardcore, like in your room lights out, you stay in bed until six o'clock the next morning when your alarm went off. Weekends, there was a little more flexibility. Uh, my parents liked to sleep in. So we were supposed to stay in our room until they got up. Um, if they stayed in their bedroom and past 10 o'clock, then we were allowed at that point to come out and have breakfast, but we generally did family breakfasts on the weekends. So there's a lot of structure about all of it. And I think some of that can be good in helping, helping create a healthy communicative relationship and family. But the way it was done was very non-relationship oriented. It was you know, redeem the time because the days are evil, which is the Bible verse, or to study the ants and go be like them, busybodies working 24 seven. Sure. Those were the kind of things that were reinforced as a backbone as to why we had the structure we did. Um, it's obviously played into me being a successful entrepreneur because I'm very structured and I have a structured yes. routine yes. and it's allowed me to do a lot of things. So I don't want it to sound like there isn't some appreciation for what I've been given, but there's got to be balance. And there wasn't balance. Um, there's a lot of pressure to perform for value and connection by following rules. So there were a lot of expectations. My mom had of us just being perfect children. Straight A's wasn't enough. She needed A plus. Like that's how that's how she looked at things. Um, Nothing was, was ever good enough. Nothing was ever good enough. Um, and, you know, already as a type A personality, high D on the disc, I was already driven to produce and perform and be perfect. You know, I struggled with the perfection. So that only made it worse. Um, but even when you really did a fairly good job, she could never compliment you on that. There was always something that was a little bit more room for improvement. And so never was, able to get mom's approval. No. So whether that's cleaning the house, you know, the, the the marks on the mirror or the streaks in the kitchen when you mopped or the corner in the kitchen, there might a little bit of dust that you hadn't gotten out of the corner with this, the broom and the mop, like just very hardcore. We we lived in an impeccable thing. We spring cleaned, fall cleaned like every quarter um, on top of what the routines were. Every day had a set routine of what was done in the house as far as chores or laundry or things like that. And, you know, 
for instance, every Friday night was pizza. Um, every Monday morning was like the load of towels and things that were wet from the weekend. Every Friday, we um, changed sheets on the bed. We just literally everything had a clockwork to it. Um, I don't know how much my dad influenced any of that because my dad at, at points in my life was kind of silent. He he was always a present father as far as he was always married to my mother. There was a period of time where they were legally separated. Well, I say legally. Legally, and this is my mom kicked him out. Gotcha. <laughs> she wouldn't let him sleep in the house anymore. And he lived at work on the floor um, because we didn't have funds for him to go get somewhere else. Um, he lived on a sleeping bag until his employer found out. And at that point in time, they asked him to do something about it. And so we got a little motor home that he lived in on the property. And we went every week and picked up his laundry, brought it back home, washed it, brought it back to him fresh. We did that for a while until my mom, and this is going to play into how my mom was and give you more backstory. Um, the rules would always be changing. So, you know, she did that for a while till then she said she didn't think my dad appreciated what we were doing for him. And so then it was up to him to do his laundry. So she forced him to go, the, forced him to do it. And so he started doing it at home, but we would leave when he would so call. He had to abide was, by her rules too. She was the one making the rules for everybody, including him. Yes. Yeah. And then she would tell him she didn't want to be home when he came to do laundry. So we had to leave, which made it just awkward. And then she didn't like that we had to be gone for a couple hours while he did his laundry. So then she told him he needed to use the laundry mat. And so it was always drama. There was always, you never knew what she was going to drop when, when things were going to change. Um, you must have been walking on eggshells. Very much so. Very much so. Um and clearly in my adult life have struggled with people pleasing because that was the foundation of how everything was structured was these are the rules, but if you don't do them to perfection, we're not going to be happy with you. We're going to withhold love and affection, appreciation, respect. Um, we're going to isolate you. So you're going to get, you're going to get shunned basically. You're going to get shunned very much so. And, and the religion itself had that as far as like, if you had come, John, to our group, we would have been open arms, welcome you. But then we would have sat down and talked to you. You know, where is your beliefs on water baptism? Where's your beliefs on Christmas? Um, are you married? Are you single? Are you having sex outside of marriage? Like all the big sins, we would discuss them with you and see where you were. And we'd make sure that you knew you can come. We love you. But these things got to change. Um, and anybody that would come so many times would last for a little while and then leave. There's there's some that would stay and, and conform to the group and adapt. Um, but you always knew if you didn't, if you did something outside of their approved list, you were at risk of being discussed publicly, humiliated publicly. And, um, if you left, you were excommunicated. If they walked in and saw you at a restaurant or a grocery store, they would walk by you and act like they did not know who you were completely. So all this to say it. Age 17, I was raped by a man 28 years older than me. Mm. But my parents didn't believe that I was raped. They believed I was messing around with someone who had who was married and had two twin boys my age. I was raised to believe that anytime a man, quote unquote, got in your pants, it was your fault. So I knew how things were going to go down when they learned of this. And I knew how much punishment I was going to get. Did I know the type of punishment or the way? No, of course not because that was always ambiguous. Um, there was a level of structure to punishment as far as spankings, 
um, disciplinary action where they would move things that you like. So if you had a hobby, say like reading that you like to do, mm -hmm. then they would no reading for a week. Those were their things. Um, they would escalate them in, in how they felt they rated of importance or severity and then start taking away things like in our lunches for school, we would get one cookie. So then no cookies, right? No sweets, no, right. no extra things, no juice, just water. Um, and so I wasn't totally shocked completely with how my parents responded, but there are elements that it was a complete shock. Um, so what, they when, when, when they did find out about what had happened to you when you were 17, that this man had done this to you, like, what, tell me more about how they, how they did react. Um, well, initially they were, they came unglued. Um, my mom called my dad at work. He came home from work. Um, they sat me in their bed, their master bedroom and talked to me. My dad sat across from it, vehemently sobbing. I've ruined his life. My dad's desire was to be a minister. And in that group of Christians, you had to have a perfect life. If your children messed up, you were disqualified for being leader. So personally, you can't have any infidelity, sexual sins. You can't be bankrupt. You can't like they have a long list of things. And so showing that you can lead the church and be a leader meant that you had to lead your home first. And that was my dad's desire. So by me having had, you know, sexual misconduct in their book, that disqualified my dad. Of course, he's very disturbed, upset. He hadn't been involved much in my life because... So you were to blame in this situation. They were blaming you. Yes. For something you had no control over. Yes. Wow. They, they believe that as a woman, you, you understand men lost after women. You understand there's things you do to turn a man on and you can't do any of that. So to back up a bit, like... My mom had fear my dad would molest us. And she would say things like dad would drive us to school, say in junior high, um, particularly for me. I would be sitting in the shotgun seat. He's driving. Mom would say, make sure you hold the seatbelt out away from your chest and that it does not at any point in time go between your breasts because that will turn men on. That creates more shape. It creates more attraction. You got to make sure that you do not do anything to turn on a man. So we lived in hypervigilance in so many ways, even at night, cleaning the ta dinner table of the dishes and putting them away in the dishwasher and you're wiping the table. She would say, do not stick, do not just lean over the table and wipe the table, sit in a chair, sit your butt down in a chair. Do not stick your butt up like a bee. So she would say like a bee sticking in the air that turns men on. Like these were things she told us. Um, so, so all these things are supposed to be things that you're wary of because men can't control themselves. You have to be. You know, men can't think of themselves and men can don't have any self-restraint. You know, if they do it, you know, if they don't, then it's your fault. You, you have to be wary of all these things. And you yeah. know, if anything happens, it's, it's all on you. It's all on you. On the yeah. Wall. So, you know, now where I'm at, you know, this far out from, from that environment, obviously there's things I see. I see that my upbringing like this set me up to be raped because I had such fear of men. I would have been putting off that energy. I would have been putting off a lot of insecurity fear um intrepidation like watching you what are you doing just so and unfortunately it, people who exploit others they can sense that from a mile away they're able to pick out you know the people that they're yeah. going to victimize they they can sense that in somebody's body language and their overall behavior and they're very yeah, good and this at was, out the people that they can they can victimize absolutely and this was a man in the medical field that had done uh, a pelvic ultrasound of me because I had very painful periods would bleed for 
anywhere from 8, 12, 14 days to a month, and in the end, ended up being diagnosed with endometriosis. So he was the person who did this. So he kind of created a, I'm sorry for what you're going through, like compassionate connection with me, you know, as far as caring and, and concern. And so that built a little bit of trust on my end, right? And made me a little bit more vulnerable. Um, but ultimately he walked in the back of my parents' house, the back door was unlocked and came in on a Saturday morning at seven in the morning when he knew I was home alone. So the, these were things my parents didn't ask though. They didn't ask how it happened. They didn't ask, they asked if I knew him. And when I said I did know him because I didn't, I did it. Sure. Right? It wasn't a complete stranger that completely. Um, and then, you know, how I was raised any time that there you had sex with somebody automatically you should get married solve the problem is get married and so she said if he were to leave his wife would you would you go with him well i said yes because i had been raised that that's what you say so some of the things i said in response to them they took as if like i was in love with him when it was they really said under duress because of the threat of Correct. going against everything. the group and everything else and if i had said no she would have said well then you and your bags are in the middle of the street like, which she threatened to do anyway, because damned if you do, damned if you don't, damned if you don't. Right. He was Hispanic. She, my mom was racial. She would not have a Hispanic grandchild. And I said, he, he said he's had a vasectomy, so I can't get pregnant. And she didn't believe it. Um, and so she interrogated me a lot. They also had a lot of fear that I had AIDS. Um, and so they made me do AIDS testing every six months, even though each time it was negative. And each time the county health department is like, have you had any additional encounters? No, then you don't need to come back. And I told tell them, my mom says that I still have to come back. She doesn't believe you guys understand how AIDS works. And of course, county health department would interrogate me because they don't believe I'm telling the truth. If I'm coming back in every six months for treatment then and testing, then clearly, you know, I'm lying. Um, she didn't want to be seen at the county health department. Um, and so she would be very ugly in the waiting room, yell at me, slap me, um, be very derogatory. Um, and I, I mean, I'm 17 years old, like mm -hmm. I'm not a, you know, two-year-old little kid running around being obnoxious. Like I'm scared to be there. Like the county health department, at least in California, where I lived, like you, you're, you're assigned a number. And your number's how you go in. They don't know your name. Right. They don't know any specifics. They know your male or female and your age. That's all they know. Um, and so it was a very scary experience. I did that for three and a half years, um, that AIDS testing. Mm -hmm. But they took it so far that I was contaminated in every way possible. I um, could not hang my bath towel next to my siblings like I'd already had in the bathroom. There was three towels. We all shared the same bathroom. We had a rod. I couldn't hang it. I had to have mine separate. I had to do my laundry separate. I could not sleep in, in the double bed in the bedroom with my sister that I had pretty much my whole life. There was a point in time in our childhood we had twin beds, but about the time 8, 10, we got um, a, a, queen, a, a full bed and we shared a bed our entire life. Well, now my mom believes that I'm going to teach my sister bad ways how to sneak out at night. That didn't happen. I never snuck out at night, but like I was the sluttiest of sluts. 
and they changed their bank accounts. They closed all their credit cards. They opened new ones. Like the amount of ways they didn't trust me was significant. Um, it just, it just I, blows my mind. I'm just I'm hearing this because you have a traumatic event happen by being sexually assaulted. And then all of a sudden you're the one that's getting punished for it in every way, shape and form possible. You're being shunned by your own family. You're being discriminated against. You're being treated like the lowest of the low lives for something that you had nothing to do with and no plan of and no complicity, no, not whatsoever. And so it's a double whammy. And I mean, the, the thing that stands out in my mind is when something traumatic like this happens to us, you know, you know, we like to know that we can go to somebody, you have our family, you have somebody around that you can trust. And it just seems like you were completely by yourself on an island there. And well, and I and I, I'll be honest, I debated about telling them that it happened because I knew I would not be understood, even though obviously I didn't know to the depths of what I experienced afterwards of being a lack of understanding. I knew I knew my parents beliefs. Right. Um, and, but, and I'll be honest for four days, I sobbed my guts. Like I vehemently, I could not sleep. I felt very sick to my stomach. I couldn't eat. Like besides dealing with what I went through now I'm dealing with, I'm going to be questioned whether I'm saved and really know Jesus. And I mean, everything you can imagine is right. going to be up for debate. And, and the, the depth of much they didn't trust me initially, they, um, made me sleep in their bedroom at the foot of their bed on the floor. Oh my gosh. Like that is how much they just went complete berserk about so, everything. So this, this is how you get treated when you are truthful and open with somebody about what what's happened to you. I mean, I, I can't even imagine what does that do to your ability to trust me? I can't imagine how hard it must've been for the longest time for you to trust anybody knowing that when you share your truth, this is how you're going to get treated. Yeah, it, well, it was a, it was definitely a process. Um, I didn't start out wanting to share my story um, because of the rejection, the abandonment from my own family. Um, you know, they put my parents, we had an oval dining room table. They extended it to as far as it could go, which was about eight feet. And I was at one end and all four of them were at another. And I was served last. I ate last. I didn't get seconds. And that time period went from the time they found out until about, it was about eight months that they did that. So my parents had this thing of leveling of punishment. So extreme. And then when they feel that you're doing a little better, they slowly give you things back. And they wanted me to give a public confession at church. Oh and goodness. I didn't feel I needed to give a public confession because I knew it wasn't the situation but at, at the same time i'm playing a, i'm playing a game and i do know how they believe that i mean my mom said to me no man is ever going to want you because you're used goods that was their belief about this kind of conduct and so sex outside of marriage was not allowed it was the ultimate of the ultimate sons so i've destroyed my parents belief in what they've created for 17 years and that became a very heavy guilt, you know, and, and burden to bear because I knew this is, this is what they believed. And even if you know, it's not true, you're still subject to that every day. They turned me into the family slave. I couldn't sit in the living room with the, my siblings, but if the whole family was there and somebody needed a tissue, Misty, go get a tissue. Misty, I need a glass of water. Misty, this, like I, I literally was 
I was removed from the family will. I was told I'm no longer firstborn. You're going to be lastborn the rest of your life. You have no say in the family affairs. Not that I cared anymore. Like truly, I it, not anything that's all that it matters. Um, but they gave me what was a seven-year sentence, and that sentence had all these things. If you do this for this long, then we'll level this up. We'll let this go. We'll let you. So I'd been drinking with my mother because of severe allergies. Purified water that would be delivered by sparklets to the house that was taken away from me. I had to drink tap water. If you're going to abuse your body, you're going to let a man come into your body and violate you. Then you can just have all the shit. Okay, so eventually I got degrading in every later. way possible. Yes, that, that was the goal was to humiliate me. They took away all my clothes, but five outfits, all the jewelry went away, no high heels. Um, everything was plain. She wanted me to resemble the Bible time period where people went in mourning and sackcloth. And she wanted to make it difficult to get through an entire week. So five outfits meant you can't get through a whole week without doing more laundry. Um so when, let me ask you this, Misty. When you were 17, by, by this age, did you start, did you have any inkling that other people's families and uh, other households weren't this way? Or did you still kind of accept that this was the norm in everybody's house? A mix. I didn't think this level of, of, of treatment and disciplinary action was normal, but I didn't have any involvement with others in their homes. I was not allowed to go to anybody else's house at school, neighbors next door. And we lived an hour to an hour and a half away from church. So I didn't have, I didn't, we went to Sunday meeting. We didn't call it church. We called it meeting once a week. But sometimes we would go once a month. Sometimes we go every three months. It depended on my mom's help, finances, all these other things. So we were sporadic. When we came, we looked like the good family. We were perfect in how we showed up. We followed any activities going on, we were very mannerly. We stood right by mother. We had fear. We were told, don't you leave my side. Now, so did, we now looked, what about school? Looked, did you go to school or regular school? Or did I mean Yes, you... I went to public school, um, all of elementary and all of junior high, which was seventh and eighth grade. High school I did from home through a course called Independent Study Program, which was funded through the public school. Um at that point in my life, around the time I was 13, I started getting really sick a lot tonsillitis all the time, ear infections all the time. I was missing a lot of school. So they enrolled me in this program to be able to help me get through school. But then in the program, I wasn't learning more than what I already had in junior high. And so because they, their goal in the church is to raise women to be mothers and stay-at-home moms, they didn't see any academic reason for me to finish high school. So they suggested that I take the California High School Proficiency Exam. It's called CHSPE, which mm -hmm. is similar to a GED. It's just different because your age and your scholastic thing is much earlier. So it's designed for girls that get pregnant at 16 and that they can get, get this test and get out and start, you know, taking care of themselves and the baby. Um, or um, for boys, if their mother, you know, the father left the family, the boys could actually make a living to help support the family. That's what the program's designed for. But I qualified because of how much I'd missed school. Um, so consequently, at age 15, I graduated high school. And the reason I was 15 is because my birthday's in November. I was in my second semester of my sophomore year academically, but calendar-wise, I was still early as far as my age. But that's what how I, and I passed. I passed. It's a pass or fail thing, and I passed the first time. 
So no more school for me. So the time between 15 and 17, I was at home learning more home uh, domestic skills and taking over the complete household for my mother. She believed that she raised good kids that should take care of things for her and she could enjoy life now. So my, my role was never, never saw myself beyond that because that was how I was raised. I believe that was right. That was true. It was godly. It was God's will for my life. Um, and the more skill set you had and the better, quote unquote, Proverbs 31 woman you were that you brought to the table, the more worthy you were of a man. So all of this was something I was still fighting for, even though I knew in their book that, you know, they already told me, we're not sure we're going to let you get married. And if you get married, your wedding dress will be black. Oh so, God. you know, and they're like, the only reason it won't be black is if you massively change your life around. Well, what was there to change? I was already doing everything. Get everything but they, possible. You know, God says he can see the desires of, he can see the purity and desires of your heart. And my parents acted as if they were God and that I wasn't in a position where I was sorry and repentant enough. And that was their goal was to break me to a point that I would be sorry. So, you know, yes, eventually I said I would give a public confession at church that I was guilty of fornication because that's how they framed it. And that's how they made it. And everybody thought that that's what happened because that's how it was set up. Nobody sat and said, Misty, why did you bleed for weeks on end after you are being raped? You know, how did it, nobody asked those kinds of questions, right. not once. Um, and I was obviously scared to voice the real truth because I'm already getting this. If I share all that other stuff and knowing the foundation of how right. they believe about it. You're afraid you're going to dig a deeper hole for yourself. Rather dig than... a deeper hole. Yeah. And, and truthfully, I didn't have any connections outside of my family because we lived so far out and I wasn't allowed to be with anybody from school. I wasn't allowed to hang out. Like I did nothing but be with my family. Not, well, so and if, this if is what I, abusers do. Abusers isolate you. That's that's one of the cardinal things they do is they, they isolate you. So you don't have any other outlets and they cut you off from anyone and everything. Any lifelines that you potentially could have, they cut you off so that you're dependent upon them. And that's what I would say so my driving fear was, was my driving fear was to make sure that I kept in enough good standing that me and my bags didn't up into the middle of the street because I was afraid. I was really afraid what would happen to me. Cause I, I didn't know how to tear for myself outside of that. Not that I couldn't figure it out. If it happened, I would, but I wasn't going to try to do something intentionally in rebellion, get me there. Um, my 18th birthday, things came and went the day that that happened my mom came in and woke me up very early at six in the morning and just said her and dad were very displeased with me. I hadn't made enough progress. And that day she decided to take away medications that I was on. So I had mitral valve and tricuspid valve prolapse for two valves of my four valves of my heart. Didn't open and close properly. I'm now resolved to that. I think a lot of it was stress. Um, but there was regurgitation and growth on the valves from the MRIs that they did and ultrasounds. And so I had been on this, but she was prepping me to get me ready to be kicked out of the house. Oh and so by doing that was taking me off my medications to see if I could, if I would survive. And so they, um, they'd already taken me off my birth control pills. I'd been on birth control pills for the endometriosis to control the bleeding and the growth of the disease. So they'd already, you know, you've violated your, your rights to this. So we're taking that away from you. So they'd already done a fair amount. They did it completely. Took me off allergy medication, inhalers, everything. 
Um, and of course I struggled, you know, your body chemically goes through withdrawals. Mm-hmm. Um, when they removed me from my sister's bedroom, I was given a space in the dining room where they built a partition full wall, but it was not the code or anything, mm-hmm. but, um, enough for a twin bed, a lamp. And so let me ask you this. So at what point did you decide that you had had enough? I mean, typically when we decide to make changes, we realize that the cost of not making any change and staying, standing fat, not doing anything is worse than taking a risk and doing something different. At what point did you realize that the cost of my staying and doing nothing is worse than taking action and leaving? Like when, when did you finally decide, you know what, I've had enough. July 1997, my sister moved to Cal- to from California to Texas to care for an elderly, elderly woman in the church. So she did. She left in a way that still pleased my parents, but she left on her 18th birthday. So they couldn't say no. And um, but she semi left with their blessing in the in, in the end, they coerced and agreed. Um, there were men from the church that came to the house, had a meeting with my parents. This was their petitioning. My sister had spent a year behind the scenes going when she did grocery shopping, going to a payphone and calling the minister and trying to figure out a plan on how to leave. I did not know any of this till two weeks before she was supposed to leave. We all knew that once she left, life was going to be a new layer of hell. I was 18 at this point, or I was, I was 20. She was 18. Um, now had she with her around, was that like a somewhat of a layer of protection for you having her around or? Yes, of course. I mean, we, you know, the more siblings you have, you all kind of buffer the 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 punishment and help each other out when you can. But at the same time, when she told me this was what she was cooking up and uh, and did we have a problem with it? I said, no. And she said, are you going to be mad at me if I leave? And I said, no. I said, if I could leave, I would. You go. I would do what you're doing if I could do it. I didn't believe I could because of how sick I was. My mom had, had convinced me that if I left living in the high desert of California, with my allergies and everything, I physically would die, literally would die. And she told me that my mom kept me very suppressed, sick. You know, there were times I needed to go to the doctor and she wouldn't take me. And there were times I didn't need to go. And she took me, it was a a mixed bag. Okay. But I did have health issues. It's just, she got a thrill of me being sick and being able to control my sickness. And so I didn't think I could leave. So she was getting secondary gain out of your being ill. Yeah. But ultimately, my sister was gone about two months. I was she and I were close. That's more close with my sister than my brother. Mm-hmm. And um, I asked my parents if I could come to Texas to see her at a Christian camp retreat over Labor Day in September. And they agreed if I could find somebody to fly with. I had never flown. They don't agree with women flying by themselves. So I found an elderly couple that I was close with, uh, their daughter, and asked if I could fly. I made all the arrangements, paid for my airline ticket, all that. So while I was here in Texas at this Christian camp retreat, one of the ministers sat down and asked me some questions, wanted to talk to me, asked my permission, and then said, they've learned some things from Mindy, my sister. Is it possible that these things are true or can you elaborate? And when I went to leave, my mom made me promise I would not discuss any of the household problems, she says. Go have fun. Do not discuss the household. It's none of anybody's business. So I was very fearful of what to say, but I answered questions, yes or no, as much as possible without elaborating. But there were things that I did elaborate on, like if they asked specifics or can you expound on this? I didn't 
not, but I did it in a way that didn't reveal the whole, whole truth, mm -hmm. but revealed enough that they got confirmation that yes, these things Mindy has told you, every one of them are true. Mm -hmm. So their petition to me, he talked to me for five hours, which was a long conversation for me to have with anybody to begin with. Sure. His idea was, can you understand that when we learn of things like this, we would not want you to return home. And I challenged that because of how the religion believed that women stayed in their parents' home until they were married. Till a man came and took her hand and became her leader, you were under the headship of your father. So that was my biggest struggle. It was not the fact that I didn't want to leave. It was the fact I didn't want to do something that would not be in God's will. Mm -hmm. And basically, you know, he's like, you're of age. And so we, we went through that battle of, okay, well, but what, why does the religion then believe this, but I'm of age, but you know, again, long story short, uh, I was, I was supposed to be here in Texas a week or 10 days. I'd have to look back exactly how long it was. It was somewhere like that. And the, the night before I was supposed to leave, we were at a, the weekly Wednesday night church meeting and a lady, they would do these things where you could sing a special number, which meant that you had a song to sing to the audience congregation. She told me before she went up to sing that she had a song she was going to sing and she was thinking of me. The song made me burst into tears in church. I lost it and walked out of church because I was crying too hard. Two of the ministers followed me out. What's wrong with you? And I just said, I don't know. I don't want to go home. And that just, just started a discussion. And the plan was then to walk down to this minister's house and call my mom and dad and tell them I was having an amazing time and extend my trip to give me time to think about what I wanted. I really wasn't having an amazing time when I came here. My sister, she's moved on. She's done with me. She's done with home. Her life is great. She has freedom to go and do everything. I mean, she was on a mountain and seeing me made her pissed off, like pissed off. Um, and why that do you think, was, why do, you, why do you think it made her pissed off? You know, I was always the oldest. Everything was always compared to me. So now I'm coming here to see her, but she's not able to feel living in her own right away from this. The, all the problems of home is following her. Like it just okay. brought back up what she left. The, the era, Even though we were a reminder of everything she wanted to get away from. What do I should get from? And, and, and she has other friends and she has fun. And, and why deal with Misty, you know, who's not happy and I mean, I, I get it. Then I didn't get it. It hurt really bad. And the rejection was, was deep. Um, but all of that fueled me. And I, that was my second time in my life. That's another rejection in a long line of rejections. You've been living a life of rejection. Yeah. Since Ultimately it was the second time in my life to be away from my mother. The first time I had been with other people, this was the first time to be away by myself. And just the unfalling is the word that I use to be away from my mother and and not be somebody hovering over me every day. Did you take your vitamins and you didn't clean this and you didn't like just the nonstop up my ass about stuff. I, I started to relax in a way I never had. So this I decision. Imagine how liberating that must have felt for you. Oh, uh, John, it was it was crazy. Um there are, and I think that all that emotion, I didn't know how to process, you know, but ultimately they opened the door by telling my parents she wants to extend her stay. I extended my stay and I started writing a resume, doing interviews, making the plans. Two weeks later, we went and got my stuff. I decided I'm, I'm not going to live like this. And I made drastic moves. I mean, I didn't go back to my job. I called them to extend my trip and in the end went and got my final paycheck when I picked up my stuff. 
So, so you never you went say, back to California after that? You never? Only to get my stuff. Okay. Went back to get my stuff. I drove out with a family. We drove all night. We we notified my parents when we got to California that night before the next day when we were going to go up to my parents to get my stuff. We didn't give them a heads up. We gave them a night's notice. Of course, they were very suspicious and knew what was going down. But I had a lot of fear. I didn't want to give them any more notice than necessary. My parents were co-signers on my bank account. Um, my parents had chance to of sabotage to- what you were doing. Um, they had keys to my car. Um, they made me leave them when I left. And, and just all these things. I didn't trust my parents. Um, I had stuff in consignment at a craft store. I went there on my way and got all my items and my final check. And then went by my employer, got my final check. Then went by the bank, cashed all that and cashed out my, my closed my account. Then went to my parents. When we got there, my mom wasn't there. She ha- obviously has to be full of drama. Um, it was my dad and then two couples, two ministry couples that had gone with me. And we had a meeting for hours. I mean, three, four hours. And it was round and round during about maybe an hour into it. My mom walked in from the back door, carrying a songbook, sobbing, just full of drama. You've ruined my life. I can't believe you're doing this to me. And the ministers tried to talk with my parents to get their blessing to let me to leave and they weren't going to do it. And I finally, about three hours into that conversation, I stood up and said, I'm, I'm done. I'm not talking anymore. I've already said what I'm doing, which is huge for me to do, right? Like stand up for myself. And I just said, she's like, why are you, what is your real desire? Why are you really wanting to leave? And I said, there is no peace, love, harmony, joy, or forgiveness in this home. Your way has not worked for 20 years. I'm going to try someone else's way. You say I'm going to die in two years. I said, I'm, I have made peace with that. If I only live two more years, it'll be two years that are well worth it. Well, did anybody know you were just starting to live at that point? That was the start of your new life. <laughs> it was the start of my life. And and truthfully, John, that approach is how I've done on anything and everything when I've come to a point of a crossroads of further rejection, further chaos, further things that have come up in my life is you make that decision. You don't look back. It's now, it's now forward. It may be hell. It may have been the steepest mountain you've ever, ever, ever walked. You may not know how you're going to do it, but when you've made that decision, it's an altar in the ground. It's a pillar that you have set and your eyes are in your heart. No, you're not going back. You burn the boat, the bridge behind you and you go. Burn it and go. And so I went, I went and got into beast mode packing. We packed all my things in 30 minutes. We threw it in that 18 passenger van that they'd taken all the bucket seats and bench seats out of. Because unlike my sister who'd planned this for a year, she got rid of shit and condensed it to five boxes to move. I had an armor. I had a dresser. I had, I mean, I had stuff. They took all my stuff. We packed everything in my car. And when I took that move, they continued talks. A few of them continued talking while I packed, but Two of the ladies got up and helped me pack. So I ended up just being the ministers talking with my dad and my mom. And, and literally 30 minutes, we were done and out of there. Um, came let, to Texas, let, let me, started let, my let, life. Let me ask you this. So so you get back and you, you, you've you got this new life you're starting. Talk to me about the new mindset and the new skills that you built. Because I, I think that's going to be something very important for the listeners to hear. Like, How did you start to re? I mean you've got to reprogram your whole core belief system and everything after something I mean, like this. Every, everything, John, I mean, you can imagine being controlled to that level. I was told 
when to drink water, not to drink water before so long before bed. Like now I can do anything. I can stay up till 11 o'clock at night. I have can, can have cranberry juice at 11 o'clock at night. I can do whatever I want. I can eat whenever I want. We had strict breakfast was between eight and nine. Lunch was between noon and one. Dinner was at 6.15 right on the minute when dad got home, period. End of story. We didn't eat outside of that. There was no snacking. You never went to the kitchen and grabbed an apple or some pecans or nothing. Actually, let me ask you this. So you go from all this restriction to then having all this freedom. How did you moderate that? A lot lot of people go from from that. I mean, you you hear the stories about like an Amish person who goes away on Rumspringa and they go totally you know, the other yeah, way. I, so I didn't, or, or I the didn't kid that go goes off to college who said, who said strict parents and they end up drinking too much and failing out. I mean, all of a sudden you have like no freedom to having all this freedom. Like how did you negotiate that so that it didn't go too much to the other direction? Talk to me about that. Cause that's, that's a big yeah, thing. So too much my, freedom. My, yeah. My, my core values were still wanting to live by the church's rules. Okay, so I I didn't change a lot of my lifestyle in that sense, but there was a lot like I wasn't used to church five times a week. Now I'm living in Fort Worth, Texas area. It's called the the Assembly of Fort Worth. That's how they would the locality of where the people were is how they referred to you. So you in California, we attended the city of the Assembly of Riverside or the Assembly of Los Angeles. Right. So here I'm here. I wasn't used to church on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, Friday night, and usually another curricular activity of volleyball or something. Okay. So now I'm having been gone to bed at nine o'clock. Now these things don't end until 10, 11, 1130, 12, one on a Friday night. Right. I wasn't used to staying up like that. So initially uh, I ate when I wanted. I went to bed when I wanted. And in the first six months, I gained 35 pounds because mm-hmm. not just being out of that stressful environment and the cortisol adjustment, mm-hmm. but now I can eat the portions I want to eat. I could eat candy if I wanted, whenever I wanted. Um, and, and so, yeah, there were adjustments. Um, I moved in with a, a lady and her two kids. And a month after moving in, my sister moved in with me that situation where she was, was no longer working out. So she moved in with me. And so we were back into sharing a bed because it was a 800 square foot little cottage of all five of us in there. Oh, wow. Um, the lady's kids were, were two and five, um, a washing machine, no dryer. So there were a lot of adjustments now to be back with my sister sharing a bed after not after all these years. And she felt I followed her and all these things. So there were a lot of adjustments, but my core values of still wanting to do the right thing, please God, those things still existed. I didn't throw over my training. I just was getting rid of that environment. My parents tried to stay in contact with me for three months, but every time I talked to them, they're degrading and harassing and belittling me would destroy me. And the work that the church was trying to do and counsel me and guide me into, you know, becoming an adult and, and owning my, my life. And so they advised me to cut off communication with my parents. Um, and I did. And then that's when my life started really, you know, moving forward because there wasn't any communication with them since then. So my mom, would call me various times when my dad had a stroke or something, but you know, it's, it's more of an informational call. My dad passed away in 2013 after having a stroke and falling and hitting his head and getting a brain aneurysm. He lasted three weeks. Um, I went to the memorial for my dad held February, 2013. 
when my mom heard that I was in town, she canceled it and then rebooked it for a week later. I came home. I was self-employed at that time, struggling financially, don't have where I am now and and uh, didn't know how I was going to buy an airline ticket and go back out to California. Um, but Bible study friends came up with money and I went back. And this time I didn't I didn't tell anybody I was coming except the people picking me up at the airport mm. so that I showed up at the memorial. I felt I needed to go. And the reason John was um, November 2012, three, two and a half, three months before my dad passed away, he wrote me a letter that apologized for not being a part of my life and not mm. being invested in me. And if that was a reason I was single and had never been married. Um, all these things, he was very, very sorry. I took 30 days to process and and write a letter back. And I told him I wanted him to move forward in the abundance of God's blessings because neither of us could redo the past. And in the current situation with my mom, I didn't foresee that she would allow me to have a relationship with my dad. I wasn't even sure if she knew he had sent this letter. That's how did, how, how did it feel for you? I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt you. How did it feel for no. you to, for him to be contrite and to get that letter from him? How, to, to get that I, shocked, I never, never, ever expected to get something like that from my dad. I mean, I still have the letter. I've kept it. But like, there's a few things in there that he wrote that, that I don't, I don't, he didn't see correctly. Like he, he believes that the tension that came between him and, and my mom in their relationship and why she kicked him out. She kicked him out because he was lusting out of other women. So they'd be out at a restaurant or something and a woman would walk by and he might glance at her. And if she's walking by, my mom would accuse him of lusting after her because she's wearing tight pants or something or a low neckline and bent over the table serving coffee or whatever. And it became such a thing that she convinced my dad that he ha was having an affair in his mind with other women. And it became such an issue she, that's why she kicked him out. So in this letter, he says, I apologize for, you know, all the things I did to your mother and how I hurt your mother. And I don't agree with that. Okay. But the truth of it is he saw enough and he was remorseful. And that was more than I ever, ever would have thought I would gotten from my dad. Oh my so how did it hit me? A shock. I... I didn't even know what to do with that. Like my dad and I hadn't had those kind of conversations. We had a conversation right. at 14 sitting on the couch in frustration one day. I just, you know, I don't feel you care about me, dad. I don't feel you're doing, you don't ever ask what I'm interested in. You never ask what I want to do. You never take me to do anything. You never, you never, you just come home, you sit and read the newspaper, you sit at your desk and you do your Bible studies, you pay bills. You go outside and do chores and wash the car. You're here, but you don't like, I'm a, I'm oblivion to you. And his words were, I never wanted kids. The only reason we had kids is because your mother wanted them. Wow. And I, I was like, wow. I said, well, I'm glad you're being honest is what I said, because I said, this is how I felt my entire life. So I'm glad that you said the truth. That for me, I think kind of settled it between me and my dad, like just to love and accept him for who he was. But no, I never felt wanted by my dad. And, and later in life, I learned from my mother that there was, you know, tension so much in their relationship that she quit her birth control pills so she could get pregnant so he would stay with her. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't wanted. I was I was born out of a need um, to repair a relationship. And so oh. back to your your question, though, of adapting to a new life. 
a lot of it was simply with the dogged determination sure. that I wanted different than what I'd had for 20 years. Right. And, and whatever that meant that I had to do, I was going to do. Um, I was in Texas three and a half years before there was a conversation with the minister had had that five hour conversation with me mm-hmm. prior. I said something somehow alluded to something and it alerted him that he didn't think he knew everything that went on in my childhood. And so he confronted me and said, Misty, I, you said this the other night, I want to know more. And I guess I had said it in just conversation. So relaxed. I didn't remember saying it. And then I had fear. Now I'm being confronted. I'm going to have to tell the truth. Not that I wasn't telling the truth, but like I was going to have to tell the whole story, not just these things that they had asked me. And he and I started a conversation in the evening after dinner and it went till four in the morning. Wow. And I was sobbing, but I told everything. I told them about my mom burning my brother's feet with matches three different times. I told everything about my dad and how and why mom kicked him out. I told them everything about all the punishment and layers of punishment for me and the stigma and ministers are usually really good at controlling themselves just like counselors you've been a counselor Mm -hmm. you know how you're supposed to show up he lost it and um the next church was going to be the next day like he slept so hard he missed getting up for church um because it was that emotionally draining sure um and so really was three and a half years in before i really came to grips with my childhood but it wasn't a full grip with my childhood because not everybody knew and I didn't want to discuss it with everybody. So there still was this protection, if you will, from what, you know, when people would ask me, well, why would you leave your parents? And I would just say, you know, it wasn't a loving home. It was very abusive. I don't want to get into the details. If I told you it would break your heart, a lot of you're going to feel guilt because you know my parents really well and you can't imagine. And the other thing is I just, I knew not everybody was going to believe me again. I mean, I I knew this and there's an element where it's just not something I wanted to fight. Right. Right. But I was still in the cult in the sense I believed we had the truth. We were the, we were the Christians. Everybody else out there is worldly and not following God and not loving Mm -hmm. God. Um, So I went through that phase until 2013, a client of mine hit me in the head right back here twice. I was a bit sassy to him um, in the sense that the arrangement had been, I was going to work remotely and dial into his server to access his QuickBooks. And he got fearful. He didn't like that security reasons, this and that. So then he decided he would give me a laptop that would be dedicated IP address to the server that wouldn't have any other outside contact. But we'd been working five months and he hadn't done it yet. And I'm making this hour and a half trip one way an hour and a half back is cutting into i'm not being profitable right so i told him you know yeah i understand that was the arrangement but if we can't have that in place by the next time i come then this is not going to work and he came up behind me and smacked me and so that really shocked me but i was proud of how i handled it yes i welted up with tears yes i was shaking all over but i immediately stood up and i put my hand out and i said you will not touch me you will not touch me like this And I said, I gathered all my things and I said, I'm going to go to my car and I'll be back in in a minute to talk to you because I was so fucking disturbed. You know, and I didn't ask you if my language is okay. If not, I guess you need to edit it. Have you seen my posts? (laughs) But that doesn't mean people want it on a podcast. But that's okay. We we speak the way we write here. And so 
trust me, it's uh, yeah. There's so uh, I went to no I went Barbara to my language. car, John. I went to my car and I sobbed. I mean, my I I I broke down and my head was over the steering wheel, but all of a sudden I had this sixth sense. He could come out with a gun. He could do anything. You are acting out of control. Get control of yourself. And you go back in there and tell him you're done. And so I did. I went back in the office. I shut the door. I stood right by the door. And he took charge of the conversation. He's like, I realize I've triggered your triggers. If you'll tell me what your triggers are, I won't do it again. Clear, abusive, vernacular. And I was a repetitive machine. Clay, this relationship is over. It's not going to work out. Clay, I'm sorry. This relationship's over. It's not going to work out. He said, well, um, I, I really like working with you. I'm, I'm sorry I made you upset. I said, I appreciate that. This relationship's well, over. We need to end the contract. He physically hit you in the head. But I went through reliving my childhood in 2013. Right. Because being abused by my mom, being shoved up against the, a corner or a wall, hands around my neck, screaming at me. When are you going to use your head for something besides holding your ears apart? All these kinds of things started replaying. I couldn't eat. I couldn't sleep. I was miserable for six weeks. Mm. I told church about it. Of course, women are always the problem. So what did you do, Misty? Well, you were too sassy. If you had been respectful, he wouldn't have hit you. And I went through so much trauma that I so decided- you're in, in 2013, the church is blaming you. You're getting that blame again. Yeah. But this time I decided, you know, they believed getting counseling from people in the church, not qualified counselors, mm -hmm. but people who volunteered to do counseling. Mm -hmm. And the reason they didn't approve of outside counselors is because we can't prove your relationship with God and you probably really don't have one. And you don't, you know, walk like we do and you wear makeup and earrings and pants. So you can't be a true Christian. Mm -hmm. That was the philosophy of how I was raised. And so I decided I needed outside help. And no matter how what it would take, I was going to get it. So I did that. Good for you. And in that process, I told my complete story to them with even more details because the details I gave that minister three and a half years in was just mm -hmm. whatever he asked me. I didn't bring out like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like I would, if I was telling it like I am now, um, it took 17 sessions, but that was the start of me really moving forward in freedom and choosing me no matter what anybody else said. Um, but it it's a, it was a lot of brainwashing. And at that point That's in really time, nice. I was 36. And um, there were ways that I had been protecting myself because of my fear of men. So like I wore a wedding band on my left hand for 16 years. Not that that keeps you from being hit on by a man. But there, I felt more in control. I felt like I got a little more respect that, oh, she might be someone else's. Now, when somebody said to me, hey, Misty, what does your husband do for work? I would be like, I don't have a husband. This is fake, but thanks so much for asking. And I went right on. I did not explain why I did it, right? But it made me feel safe. It made me feel secure. made me feel sure. in charge of my life, which is what I felt I needed. Right. But as I went through counseling, I discovered more of my walls the ways that I really was still just doing what everybody else wanted. I wasn't living my life. Right. I was living what they wanted me to be. Mm -hmm. Perfect little Misty, good little church girl, done doing everything right, wearing herself out to, you know, be the Proverbs 31 woman and hold a full-time job that they didn't like. So this is the thing. 
they don't like you being an independent woman. They want you to be married. Sure. Okay. But if there isn't a man that wants you, well, then you're left being single by default. And so it's this, well, go work, but don't make yourself like when I wanted to start my business in 2004, we would rather you just stay in an employer job, you know, work eight to five Monday through Friday, no evenings, no weekends. Like they had strict stuff as Mm -hmm. to what was appropriate. And so you were never allowed to have relationships in an employer. So I was even in, in, in community settings, I was very reserved. Always at fear that I can't talk to you. Got to keep it all business. They're threatened that you're going to get ideas from other types of people in other places. And God forbid, you might start to think for yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But ultimately, I was miserable. I was miserable. When do you feel like, at what point do you feel like you kind of got the mindset and the belief system? I mean, we never have it fully figured out. We're We're all works in progress. But at what point after that, like how long did it take before you start to feel like you were fully in control of things and again and had it was again fully in control so that you had your own mindset? You were you were the person calling the shots truly in your life. Like how long ago was that? It it was the year 2014. So I did counseling in 2013, worked with my first coach in the fall of 2013, then did an event January 2014 called Live Big in um, Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, hosted by a guy named Gerald Rogers. He was phenomenal. Um, I did it the it's a three three day immersive intensive conference, similar to a Tony Robbins type of okay. program or landmark. Uh, you know yep. things that very very much like that. I did it then, and I did it again March 2014. That live big experience was what really transformed me. Um, the the first one, my you had an accountability buddy. My accountability buddy um, was a great person, and she helped me through a lot of things. My second time through it, my accountability buddy challenged me to get rid of my wedding band and to start online dating. And between the first and the second time of attending it, I cut my hair for the very first time in my life. So my hair had been past my butt, cut that off, donated to Locks of Love, Um so there was visually now things happening too, not just the inner work, the outer work was signed. And you look at pictures of myself, you can see a dramatic uh, change visually. Um, and I'm not talking about just now wearing makeup. I'm talking about a lightness in my face, a liveness in my eyes, a smile, sure. a passion for life. So sure. my transformational You're journey. Living your own most- life and your own expression and something. We own choices. I was owning all time. of it. And I. And I actually had a new perspective that my parents loved me to the best of their ability. They didn't have it, so they couldn't give it to me. If they had, they would. They were living under a performance value themselves. They were pouring from an empty cup. They were pouring from an empty cup. And they didn't love and respect themselves, so they couldn't love and respect me. Right. And that that was a very... You know, Gerald referred to it as they've given you a gift. You get to decide whether you open this gift, keep this gift, or get rid of it. But it's it is a gift to you, and it really helped me shape how I saw my parents, and that I didn't have to keep carrying this seven year sentence on my back, even though I know it wasn't mine. It was still there because of have right. my environment in the in the church. So, 
2014 is when my life. Also, I'm sorry to keep interrupting you. No, you're you fine. Did, you also didn't have to carry that. You you didn't. You know, you were able to see them and and forgive them and and realize that, you know, they did the best they could and they were pouring from an empty cup. So I think by having that kind of self talk about them, I think that releases you from having a lot of anger as well. So you're not carrying the anger with you either. And that's it's, huge. It is huge. And and I don't think I dealt with as much anger as I did just feeling defeated, depressed, mm -hmm. discouraged, um, a failure, not good enough. Um, I felt, and counseling with the year before was really good for me too, because my counselor helped to differentiate some of the thoughts I had between me and my siblings. Like I felt my brother had dealt with more physical abuse than I did. So he had it worse, but she tried to help me understand you witnessed every bit of it. Your mom brought you into the punishment phase. She made us. So my brother was a very small dude um, at 10 years old, not growing very much. Mom had come from a family of six kids, three girls, three boys. Her brothers worked in construction with her father, my grandpa. And they ate and consumed a ton of food, two, three, four, five hamburgers, six, seven, eight, nine tacos. I mean, they worked their asses off, so they ate a lot of food. She had this prerequisite that for my brother to be strong and healthy, he had to eat that kind of food. Initially, my brother, I believe, was very rebellious, but I don't know if that rebellion is appropriate or not appropriate. I'm not going to try to judge it, but he was not cooperative. And so... They did a lot of punishment, spankings, things like this, and then leveled it up. And that's what led to burning his feet with matches. Oh that's what led to making him sit in a diaper in a high chair because he was acting like a baby. Then it was putting his right arm behind his back in a sling because he didn't appreciate having two arms eating. So he gets one and then a patch over his eye on and on and on. I could go on and on about all they did, ripping up the carpet, taking his box springs down and he's sleeping on a metal wire mesh boarding up the window with plywood, the number of ways that they turned him into a prisoner. We were a part of because mom had us make him nasty food since he didn't appreciate good food. She made us be the person. She said, go make something you wouldn't want to eat for breakfast. Well, now you're playing a game because, you know, for me, I didn't care for ketchup on eggs. So I would make eggs with ketchup. And then she'd come along and spank me because I didn't make it nasty enough. That wasn't nasty. Oh you needed sauerkraut on top of eggs for breakfast, you know, things like that. So it was always this. And so my counselor really helped me put into perspective that just because it wasn't dealt necessarily 100% at you, you saw it, you heard it, you experienced it, and you were brought into it. So it is as if you lived it. Right. And right. that was helpful to put in perspective the differences between me and my siblings. Mm -hmm. My sister lived in Texas three years. She moved on to Virginia because she wanted her own life away from me. Mm -hmm. I stayed here. My brother came November 97. So she moved July 97. I moved September 97. My brother came November 97. But he came willfully. My parents didn't, you know, approve of any of his decisions. But he lasted here a year and then he was out on the street doing drugs. And that's been the kind of life he's lived in and out of prison, in and out of jail bipolar, schizophrenic, oh on gobs of medications, a, a, a zombie, okay? I know it's because he is struggling to deal with everything in his head. Sure. Um, he came here 
started the street life in, in 2010. He was back with my mom and she was tired of him and she sent him out on the bus to live with me unannounced. So he was here for almost a year. And during that time, he attempted suicide for the eighth time. He, he'd done wow. it before. I don't know how many times since, but that was the eighth time by taking 200 pills and became non-responsive. It was 24, 48 hours before we found him and got him to the hospital. And he was non-responsive for three days, but he pulled out. But during that time, when he got out, one of the things I clearly remember him telling to me was looking at a picture of me and saying, I want your happiness and I want your freedom. And I told him it starts by a choice that you're going to pursue that with all your heart. Yeah. And two, you will kind of disconnect any connection that keeps you in chains. And I said, for you, that starts with mother. Right. And until you let go of mom and you quit your relationship, you'll never have what I have. Right. This is actually a good segue. What I want to, I got to be respectful of your time. Cause I know I'm running over with you. Um, what, uh, Talk to me about your transformational coach. You, I see what you put out on social media and it's amazing. I, I love all of your messages. Talk to me a little bit about the work that you do now as a coach and how you use your experience and you know use that in your message and use your experience to help other people now. Well, I hadn't planned on turning this into a business. My first business was... Um, developed in 2004 as a business coach, consultant, financial services. And I still have that business. But as I did this process of my transformation, I shared things. As I was processing, I shared things on social media. And people would start seeing things and were around me and wanted perspective. And then how would you handle this? How would you handle that? So in 2016, I launched my transformational coaching business, more just out of the sharing of my story and the questions people were asking. Um, it's now more of my heart and my passion because of, of how much my life has changed and how much I see people still grasping for straws to figure out how to fix their life. Yes. And my key points are to help people move past their fear, their shame, their guilt, their regret. Those can be layers of self-sabotage. They can be layers of, um, self-inflicted abuse. It can be layers of people pleasing. So those four core things that I work with can have layers that are attached to it. hundred um, percent. I will work with anyone. I don't have necessarily a clear niche avatar, but I am working on trying to define that some more because the people who've been drawn to work with me surprisingly are men. Um, 80% of my client base has been men, mm -hmm. um, men in a marriage where it's a sexless marriage men in a marriage where the woman's controlling them and they don't have a voice and they can't stand up. Mm -hmm. um, so same things that I've experienced being black labeled um, and ostracized, excommunicated, mm -hmm. um, belittled, not allowed to progress yet desiring that for your life. Um, going forward, I'm in, in a, in a phase right now, like I said, of narrowing my niche because I want to have a greater impact, but it started by me sharing my story and have not having and overcoming intentionally choosing to share my story and get past mm -hmm. the fear of sharing my story and how people would, as I say in my TED talk, receive me, let alone perceive me. Mm -hmm. So like even today when you were talking and I can see it on your face, the hard thing for me in sharing my story is you're trying to listen to this and absorb it and it's confusing and overwhelming and it's a lot and oh my God, and then you have all these questions and then yet I'm still talking and I'm still sharing more. People can't believe this kind of shit happened 
in the 2000s, you know, like 1997, like modern day, like this stuff happens, like people can't get away from right. that. People can't understand how a group of Christians would see my mom stuff my brother in the trunk because he went and rolled in the grass and he can't sit in the car. Nowadays, people will be calling 911. Back then it was like, oh my God, we can't say anything. Oh, Wanda's crazy. That's my mother's name. She's crazy. You know, <laughs> life is different now than it was then. Um, and I think people are getting more courageous to really yes. tell their stories and tell the truth. We're done with fake news. We're done with fake personas. We're done with elevating each other and keeping people on a pedestal for the sake of a relationship or a role. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's it's those layers are coming down and the more people are coming to the surface of wanting help to really transform their life, really live in freedom. Yes. And some of that has been the unraveling of the cult and the religious beliefs that I share and I still share and I will continue to share. And I think some of it comes from a core value, John, that I feel whoever your guru is that you love, John Maxwell, Oprah, Brendan Bouchard, Tony Robbins, they're all going through something right now in their life, personally or in business. It's a challenge that they don't know how they're going to get through. The problem mm -hmm. is they are not going to disclose that to you authentically right now until they figured it out and then they'll share it as a story to make money on that has been a grief to my soul because i feel that we all are no better than the other person mm. and one of the reason i vulnerably share things that i write about very descriptively is because i want people to know that this is happening right now sure. i might have had a huge transformation and worked through a lot of different things but this is a trigger or this is a trauma or this is a difficult thing that I'm struggling with how to deal with. Right. And it gives them more hope in the moment right. that they can too. Instead of elevating yeah, it, me. It's as relatable. Got... It's relatable. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that the community that people are connection that people are looking for is that we don't need more leaders, transformational coaches, business coaches, consultants, leaders of any capacity acting like they have everything together and keeping themselves as a role model on a pedestal. We need more people to come together and go, this is an area I'm struggling with and still learning and adapting or growing, or it's a new area that I've got to grow, go to, because I believe every layer we go through um, in, in leveling up, it's just more to grow through. So whatever challenge comes, it will trigger my triggers of being good enough from a childhood. It will trigger everything in rejection because that's been a theme of my life. So at age 20, I left my family. I'm excommunicated. Age 37, 36, 37, I left the church excommunicated. So it's not happened once. It's not happened twice. There's been other instances, you know, relationships, other things that, that have broken down. Learning how to navigate those things and learn from them and own my part and my responsibility mm -hmm. and be able to clearly go, this part's not mine. And I don't have to assume that and take it on as a burden and try to fix it. Right. Um, and not so, only that, but, not, you know, rather, you know, excommunicate by this church or that church. Now you're creating your own table. Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. your own group of people who need what you're you know, your message and what you're offering. And I think that's amazing. And I, I think more people need to realize that you can create your own table and there's people out there that you can help. And even if you help one person, you know, there's every single person has value and you can share that story. And 
I love the I love your vulnerability and I love what you offer to everybody because you know it's real and it's in the moment, like you said. I mean, just even following what you went through recently with the automobile accident and your recovery from that over the recent months. I mean, that was real and it was raw and it was truthful yeah. and and yeah. you shared you shared your suffering with all of us. And I appreciated that because that's uh you know, it was a very gutsy thing for you to do and something not a lot of people would have been brave enough to do. So you, you definitely do no, it, it for that. I, I do it for twofold reason. One, I want to lead by example. Two, I feel that when we do lead by example, not only do we create the relatability that you referenced here a minute ago, but we also show people how to design and create that courage, that determination, that grit take action, follow through, even when it's hard, even when it doesn't bring you the results that you wanted um, and how you can create strength from it and turn your pain into power. Yes. So the, I, I feel our culture does not know how to embrace pain. And I also believe that the personal growth development world isn't really helping people do that because there's so much pressure to control your negative thoughts and turn them into positive that we're now fighting any negative energy, any negative experience, any negative challenge, instead of looking at it like a battery, there is a negative and a positive charge and it takes both to create that energy. Mm -hmm. When we go to sleep at night, our bodies wake up in the morning and there is this sedimentary energy that needs to go somewhere. Once you start moving, you can start feeling like you've got to do something, got to get something done. That's there intentionally to get us to move. So yeah. we exercise, we get our day started. That negative energy is not bad. We turn it into, you know, automatic negative thought patterns that they refer to. And I'm not saying those don't exist. What I'm saying is as a, a, a person who has been through trauma and abuse, a lot of my challenges aren't thoughts, they're feelings, because it's stuck in a core emotion inside of me. I don't have a thought, John, you're going to reject me. I might have a feeling. Mm -hmm. And that feeling is so deep. Yes, then it creates thoughts. Now I'm having to deal with those too. It's kind of like I say, when you come up on a wreck, there's times you can see that a wreck happened and you know how it happened and mm -hmm. you, you have a thought, gosh, I hope everybody's okay. There's other times you come up on a wreck and it's dissimilated mess and you wonder if anybody's alive you're feeling that long before you ever think it mm -hmm. so i i come at it from a perspective that it's a dual kind of like the duality that we're supposed to live in with the world light and darkness it's the same thing with our thoughts and our feelings so in my coaching and the transforming it's not trying to make fear wrong it's trying to look at it with a different perspective could it be possible that you actually are excited when you think you're fearful out of a mm -hmm. new opportunity of dating or a job interview yes. or whatever, right? Fear and excitement are the same energy to the brain. It the is the same physiological it's response. It's the attribution you give to it. Exactly. And, and that's what uh, I try to help people see through these examples. It's not that, you know, like right now I'm dealing with an autoimmune disease with Lyme disease and mold toxicity illness. I've talked to several people who inquired me, Missy, how do you still have hope? And it's like, well, one way I do that is by not making my body wrong for what it's going through. We naturally, anytime things don't work out how we want or how we think it should be in this moment, we make it wrong. And so how can I say that my body is right to respond like this? It's being designed exactly like God designed it to because it has something in it that needs to be shifted and changed. 
So it's by dealing with these circumstances that normally shut people down and keep them stuck because one, they don't accept them and two, they don't embrace them. And in that acceptance and embracing it is where your power is going to move and you're going to learn and you're going to grow. If you don't ever accept it, it's always going to be wrong or bad. Yes. If you don't allow it to work in you for some kind of good, you're not going to be able to get the strength and the lesson from it. And you're going to make, you're, you're, you're doing exactly what everybody else has done to you, whether it's abuse and not creating safety and environment or unwanted and loved, you're doing it to yourself. Right. So a lot of my childhood experiences have allowed me to be in this position now and reframe again, ongoing circumstances in my life, which I'm still learning how to do. There's some I do really well and there's sure. some I still struggle with accepting, right? Telling and um, reframing. Yeah. You're telling a new story. It's rewriting mm -hmm. that narrative. My initial goal was to tell my story once a week and then it became to once a day. And in that process, all my goal and desire has been is to be a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. And that's still what it is today. I want to encourage, support, and inspire people to create the life they want and to live intentionally because I believe true living is by the art of choice, the art of crafting exactly what you want to experience um, emotionally, physically, spiritually in all areas. It's not just one. And we get to shift. We get to change when something's not working. It's easy to like, why is this happening? And, you know, why are bad things happening? And I've been there. You've seen me write about it in the last year. There's been a lot of, a lot of things at times I've referred to being modern day Job that I feel God has called me to. And um, two months ago, I asked myself, okay, if, if that is true, if that is what God is asking of you, are you willing to accept the assignment? Or are you going to keep fighting it? And it was like, I don't have to be as Job was in the Bible. So angry and pissed off at life. I can realize somewhere, somehow this pain that I'm going through right now is going to make me a better person. Sure. And I got to quit fighting it. If I keep fighting it, then I'm making myself suffer. I got to find a lesson in it. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes you don't see the lesson for a while, but if I believe that whether you believe what Tony Robbins says, everything's working for your good, or God says, mm -hmm. I will work all things for your good, either one. If I really believe that, then do I need to be frustrated? Do I need to have doubts? Do I need to be irritated, pissed off? Yeah, it may not be fun. It may be very uncomfortable. But if I still at the core believe and have faith that in the end, it's all going to work out for my good, then whatever I experience is okay. Because God is always with me. And that's the other thing. A lot of my religious beliefs have changed. I was raised that you had to be in God's will. And if you were in God's will, then he's with you. God is always with you. He never leaves you. Ever. But you have to be willing to see him. You have to be willing to feel him. And you have to be willing to trust him. Yes. And so that's the that's the framework that I try to work with coaches. I mean, as a transformational coach with my clients is to help them understand where are you right now? And how does your current experiences relate to a past experience or a desired future experience? Because I don't believe all our triggers are all just past. There's current things going on that relate to past experiences and a desired outcome for a future. Mm -hmm. So adapting both perspectives with 
a framework of how can I look at this with a different lens, a different perspective, and what can I learn from it? Love it. So if you had one parting message for the listeners today, uh, if you could leave them with one final message, uh, what would you what would you tell them right now? What's what's the message you think everybody needs to hear at this point? Well, a question, you know, as I was beginning my transformational journey that I asked myself every day is what would I do today if I wasn't afraid? And I feel that most people live so in depth in fear. What would you do today if you were not afraid? And then the second question I would say is what what would be the most courageous thing you could do to show the world the real you? Your wow. real thoughts, your real feelings, and not hold back. Yes, people will reject you. Yes, it will affect relationships. Not everybody has the space to be ready to receive you and acknowledge what you have to say or what you believe or what you feel or what you want or what you need. But what would your life be like if you could be so courageous to confidently show up as the real you? Unapologetically you. Unapologetically you. And I know that authenticity is a bit of a buzzword right now, John, but you know, in my TED talk, I describe it as being open, real, raw, and vulnerable. I don't believe you can be authentic without being open. I don't 100%. believe you can be authentic without being real. Um, I don't believe you can be authentic without being raw, like really raw about what's what's going on. And the vulnerability part is where people get stuck the most because that's where shame starts coming and lurking around and fear and guilt and regret. And so authenticity has layers for you to be authentic. You have to accept everything you've been through. Yes. And most people still fight it. And they also suppress, I believe, true liberation, true freedom because of the words that they use. I will never say that I am a rape victim. I was raped. There's it was no a need to over-identify with it. Yeah, it doesn't have no. to be. That's that. No. That's one of the biggest problems I see is people over-identify with being, whether they're a victim, whether they're a survivor, whether they're this or that, they over-identify with it. And it's just, that doesn't define who you are, that you're, there's so much more to that. There's so many layers and dimensions to a person more than that. And so I like that. It's you know, rather you describe the event like it, like it happened, but it's not, that's not who you are. That's not your identity. No, I mean, even right now doing these health autoimmune issues and there's a couple of Facebook groups that they refer to themselves. I am a moldy when they're dealing with mold toxicity illness. I am not a moldy. I have had mold in my body, mm. but I am not a moldy. Right. And so there's a there's a lot in the words that we use that reframe who we are and who we become. And having full love and acceptance for my body and my experiences it's easy, John, even now when I get triggered, right, to fight the experience I had and to resent that this is still in my life. And why can't this just go away? Like, be done with it forever. Well, there's layers, like I said, to healing, you mm -hmm. know, um, dating challenged a lot of my beliefs about men. So when I did that live big experience and took the challenge to remove my wedding band and begin online dating, which I did for six months, um, and then did speed dating and singles crews and all kinds of other things, I kept going, right? I saw what happened when I faced my fears and how those diminished. I saw how when I faced my fears, I became more courageous. Mm -hmm. I became more confident. I became sure. more strong. 
So some of it is looking at what's the desired outcome you really want for your life. What would freedom look like for you? And mm -hmm. where do you feel that it's lacking in your life right now? And to walk that redemptive path that you're talking about, what is missing in your life to give you that momentum to move forward? So Are you good. holding somebody hostage? Are you holding yourself hostage? There's a lot of questions, you know, questions are the power to the answers of our life. So being 100%. able to sit and ask ourselves authentic, vulnerable, tough questions is the only way we're going to transform. Man, that's powerful. Gosh, so excellent. Wow. That's a lot for everybody to think about right there. It, it is, John. And I will tell you, it's really hard, you know, for your listeners to get a glimpse of my life in the various ways and bring forth points that they can relate to whether they've been abused or not raped or not. They've gone through a divorce. They've gone through losing a job. They've gone through family dynamic struggles with their in-laws. They've gone through relationship breakups. They've had bankruptcy. They've had foreclosure. They've had a death of a child. There's grief and traumas that have all different kinds of shapes and sizes. So even if they don't relate to religious abuse or to being raped, they understand the fear, the shame, the guilt, the regret, mm -hmm. the choices you have to make when you've been rejected and abandoned. Sure. And it's a choice to move forward intentionally in freedom. Redemption is available for every one of us. There isn't yes. one card just for one person. It's available for every single person. Mm -hmm. And God gives you that choice right now. You don't have to wait for new mercies in the morning. They're right now available on this Tuesday afternoon. Yes. <laughs> you can bounce forward, you know, not bounce back, but you can bounce forward from any of these things. How can everybody find you? I'm on all social media platforms under my name, Misty W. Gilbert. Um, so Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I am most active on Facebook, but I do have the other accounts. Um, my website is mistywgilbert.com and they can read the blog or contact me there, send me a message. Um, I do um, weekly calls called sharing each other's live call, which is where you can get on a call with me. And if you've heard me on a podcast and you have questions or you just want to share your story with me, or you want a free little coaching session, it's a no expectation call. We discuss whatever you want to discuss. Um, and if you want to work with me, we can talk about that too. Excellent. Well, I can't thank you enough for being on here today and sharing your story and sharing your strategies and the mindset for, for getting past, you mean, but you know, I mean, as far as this podcast is concerned, some of the most difficult of obstacles that, you know, that I've had anybody discuss here. And so, I am very grateful for your vulnerability and your willingness to share because uh, I think this is going to help a lot of people going forward. So yeah, and and just know I didn't tell you this offline, but you know I know it's a lot, and if there's ways we need to come back and elaborate something further, because I know we tried to cram a lot in with the story and then with how did I transform and what have I learned. There's there's a lot to unpack in one podcast. So if you want to you know elaborate more on certain aspects. I'm open to that. If this is enough and it, it answers the questions to get the message out, that's good too. Well, I'm sure this isn't the last time we'll meet up on a podcast. And so <laughs> I, I think, uh, I, I think I can foresee this uh, happening again down the road and, uh, 
you know, I, I'll, I'll be posting the episode. And I think if anybody has any questions, uh, I'll definitely invite them to post their questions or to reach out to one of us in order to get those questions yes. answered. Yes, absolutely. So, well, thank you very much again. All right, thank everybody. You. Well, if you got something out of this, all I ask is that you please go and share the show. And if you enjoyed it, if it impacted your life, and like I said, if it resonated with you, go online, leave us a five-star review on Apple and Spotify. I want you to go forward with your day. I want you to go out and make somebody's day better, their day, their week, their month, their year better. Let's help each other out. We're all in this together. Go forth, and I will see you next time. Bye.